0: Have your Bible with you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> the Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Gospel of Mark and we'll be in chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 beginning in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have spoken to us through this word and ask that you would speak to us anew this morning, that you would help us this morning to see your Son in the text and that you would apply this to our lives that we might become more like him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There was a man who went to the doctor. He was dealing with chronic snoring for quite some time and he wanted to find a cure for it. And so he went to his doctor and as soon as he got into the doctor's exam room, the doctor asked, So are you here for your snoring? And the man said, yes. And the doctor said, is your wife being annoyed by it? And he said, yes, of course she is. As a matter of fact, The entire congregation is annoyed by it every Sunday morning. So the man was falling asleep every Sunday service because of the preacher. And in Acts chapter 20 verse 9, we're introduced to a young man named Eutychus who was sitting in a window while the Apostle Paul was preaching. The young man fell asleep mid-sermon and fell out of the window and died. And Paul came and raised him back to life. Now I have to say that's encouraging to me. If Paul... You know, the guy who God chose to write most of the New Testament could lull somebody to sleep with his preaching. That makes me feel a little bit better about my own preaching. (laughs) That guy fell asleep. And the guy in our story this morning was falling asleep every Sunday morning. But this morning, we'll be introduced in our text to a man who was a true man's man. We're introduced to a man who was a preacher, who was a prophet. A man whose preaching would not put anybody asleep during the service. A man whose preaching was bold and passionate. A, who, a man whose preaching was not about himself. It was not about telling good stories and making people feel good at the end of it. It wasn't about giving them political ideologies. This man's preaching was about pointing everyone who had ears to hear to the Lord Jesus Christ. This man who we're introduced to in our text is... John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, I don't think that John was a member of a Baptist church. I don't think that's where he got his name from. But he was called John the Baptist because he baptized people. He immersed people in water for the remission of sins. And we'll talk more about that later on in the sermon. But John the Baptist is the preacher here. He is the prophet who is revealed to us in the Gospel of Mark. And the first thing I want to look at in this text is the prophecy. The prophecy. Look with me at verses 2 and 3 of our text. Mark, who is writing to a primarily Roman audience, that is, he is writing to people who don't know much of Old Testament Scripture. They wouldn't be familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, the Torah, as it was called to the Jews, only quotes the Old Testament ten times in his Gospel. Half as much as Matthew, Luke, and John. And he does that, first of all, because of his audience. Because his audience was not familiar with it. It would be like going up to the north and saying, y'all. Or it's like translating uh, how, the, how, how Spanish-speaking people uh, ask how many years do you have, when really what they're asking is how old are you? It didn't translate well for them. They wouldn't be familiar with it. And the second reason that he doesn't quote much of the Old Testament is because Mark doesn't feel that there's much of a necessity for him to defend Jesus, but he just reveals Jesus. He doesn't defend him and say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now let me give you a bunch of reasons why I believe that. He just says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now let me show you that. Now let me point you to the ministry and Jesus will reveal that on his own. And so Mark doesn't use a whole lot of Old Testament uh, prophecies, a whole lot of Old Testament cross-references, but here he uses two. And the first one's in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament who wrote some 740 years prior to Mark's writing. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark makes two of his ten cross references to the Old Testament scriptures right here in these opening verses of his gospel. And the verses he quotes, both from Isaiah in verse two, and then in verse three, he quotes from Malachi, both of these serve to point us to John. John the Baptist, John who would be the forerunner of Jesus. And Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God, speaking to the Son of God, saying, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. So in other words, he's saying, Isaiah is saying what God is saying through him, that there is going to come one who will pave the way for Christ. There is going to come one who is going to tell the people, get ready because Jesus is coming. Get ready because the Messiah is coming. Now if you're a Jew in these days, if you are alive in these days walking the streets of Jerusalem, you're looking everywhere for the Messiah. You're looking everywhere for these Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled. And you're constantly wondering as the next teacher comes along, is this guy the Messiah? And so it was with these Jews. They were looking for the Messiah. And even the Gentiles would have been aware of some of these prophecies. And they were looking for the Messiah. They were waiting for Him. They were wondering what time He would come and what He would look like, what He would say, what He would do, how He would act. And so Isaiah, 740 years prior to the coming of that Messiah, is writing to us here. Saying, I'm going to send someone and when that person comes you're going to know that shortly after him the messiah will come and this john the baptist was the very cousin of that messiah and he was the one who would pave the way this verse here behold i send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way is a direct quote from malachi chapter 3 verse 1 which says behold I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now the word that Malachi used in the Old Testament and the Hebrew language for messenger was malach. It was an ambassador, a messenger, one who has been sent to deliver a note or a notice on behalf of another. In Second Corinthians five verses 17 through 20, we see this very same word, ambassador or messenger. It says, if you would turn with me there to Second Corinthians chapter five, verses 17 through 20, it says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come." Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're told here by Paul in the verses we just read in 2 Corinthians that God calls us unto newness of life. Next weekend, Lord willing, we'll gather together on both Saturday and Sunday for a revival services, all of which the sermons will be geared toward newness in Christ. What does it mean to be made new? What does it mean to have newness in Christ? What does it mean to be that the old has passed away and the new has come? The old is gone and the new has come. What does that mean? We'll look at that. But what this newness does is it makes us ambassadors of him. Once you have been made new in Christ, once you have been bought by His blood, once you have been cleansed of your sins and saved from your sins, saved unto grace, it does something in you. It makes you new. One of the primary ways that you can tell whether or not you're in Christ is that you have a desire to tell others about Him. That you become an ambassador of Christ. That you become one who speaks of Christ. One who is enthralled by what he has done and amazed by his grace. And that's what Paul tells us is that once we're made new, we're going to tell others about him. And that's exactly what John does here in the Gospel of Mark. He sees that Jesus is the Messiah. He sees that Jesus is the Son of God. Exactly what Mark said in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Both Mark and John believed that Jesus is the Son of God. And so here comes John on the scene preaching that, hey, Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. And the sermon that he preaches is one of deliverance. It's one of preparation. It's one that... Prepares the way for Christ. He says in verse 2 As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. I love that it says in verse 3 that he's crying out in the wilderness. He's not just going around whispering about the gospel. He's not going around ashamed of what he believes. He's not going around just hanging out in small corners of the world saying, I'll just preach to these people because they want to hear it. No, he's crying out in the wilderness. The word that's used here is caruso. It's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament for preaching. He is preaching. He is declaring. He is crying out in the wilderness saying, the Lord is coming. Here comes the Lord Jesus Christ and He is bringing salvation with Him. In other words, He's saying, Come to Christ. Be saved. Trust in Him today. Today is the day of salvation. He is crying out in the wilderness. He is one who is begging with people. He is pleading with people. Be saved from your sins. John is crying out in the wilderness. He doesn't care what people think about him. He doesn't care if people mock him. He doesn't care if people think that he's out of his mind. He is preaching Christ. He wants nothing more than Christ to be known. And the message that he preaches, we see in verse 3, is to make ready the way of the Lord. To make His paths straight. In other words, what he's saying is Get your sin out of the way. Get yourself out of the way. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop focusing on the things around you and instead look to the one who's coming. We have so much easy believism in our Western so-called Christianity that just says, if you want to be saved, just raise your hand. Just repeat this prayer after me. Just walk this aisle. Just get baptized in the baptismal pool that's right by the door. And then as soon as you do that, you can pick up a free t-shirt and go on about your way. You don't really have to walk in Christ. You don't really have to be made new. You don't really have to live like Jesus. None of that matters. Just raise your hand and you'll be saved. But that's completely contrary to the gospel that John is preaching here. John is preaching. Look at verse 4. He's preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's preaching that in order to be saved, God must do a work within us. God must make us new from within so that we would cry out to Him. God must do a work of drawing you to Him and then you will repent of your sins. You will cry out and say, God, I see how wonderful you are, and I am repenting of my sins. I'm making the pathway clear. I'm getting myself out of the way. I'm getting all of my sin out of the way. I'm getting all of these distractions out of the way so that you can come near. And this is what John the Baptist is crying out. He is declaring the word of God. He is preaching with zeal. He is preaching as a dying man to dying men, realizing that the days are short and that eternity is long. And he is crying out, be reconciled to God. Get yourself out of the way because here comes the Messiah. And this prophecy was written that John would do exactly this. And we'll see later on in the text more of what he says. But for now... Mark diverts away from this prophecy and away from the sermon that he preaches and focuses instead on the prophet in verses 4 through 6. Mark chapter 1 verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Again, this John the Baptist was a man's man. In our day and age, it is labeled as unpopular to state that God has created two genders, male and female. It's even more unpopular to say that he's created male and female to be different. That although he's created them to be equal in importance and value, they're different. This is known as complementarianism. It says that God created man to be the head of the household. To have dominance over the land. And to be the spiritual leader, physical protector, and primary provider. And the woman God created to be a helper to the man. To support and honor him. To submit to him as he submits himself to the Lord. They complement each other. And that's complement with two E's, not one E and one I. Although a man and his wife should complement each other with an I too. They should build each other up. But this complementarianism, this complementary act of a man and his wife is to encourage one another, to support one another, to work well with one another, to be like puzzle pieces that God has fit together. God created men to be men and women to be women. This is why the Bible very clearly says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done, in love. It's interesting, I was at a store not too long ago, and there was a t-shirt that had exactly this verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. But the part that was missing was the whole act like men part. It said, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, be strong but it took out the act like men part because that would be too unpopular. That wouldn't push sales enough. But God created men to be men and women to be women. Men are to act like men, to be godly, to be manly. And manliness is not measured by how big your muscles are or by how big your truck is or by how many guns you have in the cabinet or by how much steak you can eat. Manliness is determined by how much you live like Jesus by how much of a godly leader you are, by how much you are declaring His name and pointing people around you to Him. And because of that, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he is an example of what manliness looks like. He is an exemplary man. And the reason for that is because he comes to declare the gospel of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10, through 10, we reminded. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that homosexuality and effeminacy are, among many other things listed there, sinful acts of rebellion against God. God has created men as men and women as women, and any departure from that, which, by the way, is more than an opinion, it is a biblical truth that cannot be escaped, but any departure from that is spitting in the face of God. It's shaking your fist at God, saying, I know that you created things to be this way, but I'm going to be my own way. I'm going to discover myself, and I'm going to demand that everybody gets on board with it and is okay with it. Men are to act like men. And women like women. And in the event that those two get crossed over and confused, we have a word for that. It's not transgender. It's not finding yourself. It's called sin. It's called sin. And it is a sin that needs to be brought before the Lord Jesus Christ in humble repentance for the salvation of the soul of the one who attempts to go against God and His Word and His creation order. And I say all of that to point us to the fact that John the Baptist was a true man. He wasn't unsure of his sexual identity. He didn't pretend to be what he wasn't. You didn't have to walk by him and look at his dress and wonder whether or not he was a man or woman and question your mind for the next couple of hours what he was. You knew without a doubt that this was a man of God. John the Baptist was someone who could lead a seminar on biblical manhood. I always find it funny when some of these conferences on biblical manhood are led by feature speakers who look like they should be in the audience rather than on the stage, learning how to be a man themselves. But John the Baptist was a man who stood firm on the Word of God, who didn't get afraid when he was challenged, who said, this is the Word of God, this is the Son of God, and I'm going to point you to Him. Dr. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, wrote a book titled The Conviction to Lead, in which he said, the leadership that really matters is all about conviction. The leader is rightly concerned with everything from strategy and vision to team building, motivation and delegation. But at the center of the true leader's heart and mind, you will find convictions that drive and determine everything else. Someone may have great leadership skills, but if the person does not have unwavering and solid convictions, his leadership skills will never be put to good use. They will become weak when challenged. Those skills will be like someone who can shoot three-pointers all day long, but once they get out on the court in front of a crowd and in front of their competition, they freeze up. We as a church and we as individuals need to have strong convictions, and those convictions, beloved, must come from the Word of God. Those convictions must come from thus saith the Lord. And John's did. John knew the Scriptures. And John pointed people to Christ. He had convictions that served as the engine driving him to do what he did. He believed what he preached. And he stood firm on it. In John chapter 3, verse 30, this very same John the Baptist says, He, being Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And this is at the heart of ministry. This is the model for ministry that if any pastor, if any preacher, if any teacher of the word of God is going to be firm on their convictions, if any teacher is going to be effective, then they must have this as their model that he must increase and I must decrease. I don't care about if my name is known or not. I don't care how many people share my my sermons on Facebook. I don't care how many people know how great I am because I'm not that great. What I care about is how many people know the Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry that I have been given. And John shares that model of ministry. In verse 4, he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right off the bat, he's doing something that's not popular. He doesn't come along and say, oh, you're just fine. You're enough. Just as you are. Because John understands that if we were enough just as we are, we would not have needed Jesus. But John comes along and he says... All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and therefore repent of your sin. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and He will give you what? Forgiveness of those sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what happens in verse 5 is incredible to me. And all the country of Judea was going out to Him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Notice that in verse 5. All the country of Judea was going to Him. So many ministers today, so many churches today believe that if they're going to grow their church, they need to follow these 10 steps of growth and they need to be popular and they need to be cool and attractive. But if we want to see true growth, what we need, true growth in the church of Jesus Christ, comes from the preaching of the word. If we want to see the sheep come to the church, we need to declare the word. It's exactly what John chapter 10 says that they will hear his voice and who will come? The sheep will come. As the word goes forth, the sheep will come. And it happens here. As the word of God goes forth, as the convictional preaching of John the Baptist goes out, the sheep come in. And in verse 6 it says that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. That serves to show us that he didn't have much. He didn't have much money. He was wandering in the wilderness, so he didn't have a home. He didn't have a fancy car. He didn't have fancy suits. He didn't have a private jet or two or three. What he had was an open Bible and a voice to declare the Lord Jesus Christ. And to him, that's all that mattered. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that all the prophets and those who went before us weren't serving themselves. They weren't getting behind the pulpit week by week just to collect a paycheck. They weren't going from town to town just so they could be known. They were going from town to town so that Christ would be known. And this is exactly what John the Baptist does here. The prophet here, John the Baptist, cares only about the great prophet who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we see the preaching. The preaching in verses 7 and 8. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was preaching a gospel of repentance. This word for repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind or to turn away from something, to go the other direction. John the Baptist was telling us that we can't walk with the world and with the Lord. He said the very same thing that John the Apostle, another John in Scripture, said more than 12 times in the book of 1 John Namely, that we cannot have friendship with both the world and God. We are either in Christ or in chaos. We are in the world or in the Word. And John comes along here preaching a gospel of repentance. In verse 4, he says that we must repent of our sins. We must turn away from our sins. And then in verses 7 and 8, He tells us who He turned to. And He was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. In other words, what John is saying is so often we get caught up in thinking that we're really great. That we're really somebody. That we might be famous in a small town. But if you go a town over, they might not even know your name. And so what John says is, Listen, you might think that you've got it all figured out. You might think that you've gone through your whole life without Jesus and that you don't need Him. Because you've gone this long, why do I need Him now? I'm 50 years old, I'm 60 years old, I'm 70 years old. I've not needed Him yet. I don't need Him anymore. I never need Him. I can get through life perfectly fine. But a day of judgment will come. And on that day, you'll need Him. You'll need Him then. And so John comes along and he says, Repent of your pride. Repent of your foolishness. Repent of your selfishness. Because there is one who is mightier than I. There is one who is greater than you are. There is one who is holy, one who is perfect, one who is pure, one who has come to save you from yourself. And he preaches a baptism of repentance. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we're told of baptism. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. As Baptists, we don't hold or teach that baptism saves us. But Baptists have historically held to and taught That baptism by full immersion, baptism by going fully under the water, is a symbol outwardly of what has taken place inwardly. That God does the saving internally. God cleans us up. God baptizes us as it says in verse 8, I baptize you with water, but He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God baptizes you inwardly. God has to make a change inside of you before you ever make a change outwardly. God has to give you a new heart, as it says in Ezekiel 36, before you ever follow Him. Before you ever make a public declaration that I am His, you must first be His. And so He says in verse 8, I baptized you with water, but He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. There was a little boy once who went up to the preacher after the sermon and got saved. And when... The preacher asked how he got saved. The little boy said, well, I did my part and God did his part. And one of the deacons who overheard it said, maybe he didn't get what he thought he got because he said he did his part. But as I read through Scripture, it's all what God does, what God has done. And so the preacher said, well, let me press a little bit deeper and ask him again. And so he asked the little boy, well, what was your part and what was God's part? And the little boy said, well, I did my part, which was the sinning. And God did his part, which was the saving. All we bring to our salvation, as Jonathan Edwards, the leader of the Second Great Awakening said, is the sinning. All we do is sin and God saves Baptism must take place inwardly first. We must be purified from our sins, cleansed from our iniquities, made to be white as snow, as it says in Isaiah chapter 1. And then once that happens, we go under the water and come up as a symbol, as a sign of what God has done inwardly. And in verse 7 and verse 8, John points us to the Messiah who is mightier than we are. Who is beyond comparison. He points us to this one whose grace is amazing. He points us to this one who came to live a perfect life. And John is not whispering about this. But he is saying, look to Jesus. He alone can save. He alone can make you new. Look to Him. As we come to a close this morning, I wonder if you're aware of just how mighty and holy this God is. Maybe you've walked with Him for some time now, but you've grown calloused or cold. We're told that in the last days, the love of many will wax cold. As we look at the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, we see that they're lukewarm. They're trying to walk with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And it doesn't turn out for them too well. Maybe that's you this morning. But be reminded today of how great He is and how desperately John wanted us to see that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the salvation that you have brought to me in my own life. For the cleansing that you have brought. For the gospel message that you have given me to tell others of how great you are. And I thank you for those who are here this morning who have been saved by that very same grace. And for how much of a blessing it is to get to walk through life with them. Would you make us bold, like John, to tell others about your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.